Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting The Motley Fool. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. For $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash fool. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, July 23rd, and we're covering investment bank earnings and then taking a deeper dive on investment banking itself. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel, as always. Now, listeners, a quick note before we uh, get started and into the, the fun stuff. We're transitioning industry focus. Shannon Jones filled in for me on two episodes earlier this month while I was out on vacation, and she did that in part so she could test drive industry focus financials. Starting next week, I'm very excited to announce that she will be serving as the regular host for Industry Focus Financials, and I will be heading over to the Thursday show to replace Sarah Priestley. So the lineup next week, and from then on, at least for a while, (laughs) will be Shannon Jones for uh, Monday's show, Vincent Shen for Tuesday's show, Christine Hargis for Wednesday's show, Michael Douglas, that's me, for Thursday's show, and Dylan Lewis for Friday's show. Longtime listeners will note that this will be the third show on Industry Focus that I will have um, been the host for, in addition to both financials and healthcare at different times. My personal goal is to get to all five one day, but uh, unfortunately, I'm more than halfway there. So, Dylan, Vince, I'm coming for you. Just kidding. (laughs) All right. So, with that, let's hop right into earnings. And um, this is our second earnings episode. Of course, last week we talked about the big four. Now we're hopping into the investment banks. Goldman Sachs, what a bumper earnings report. I mean, profits up 40% year-over-year, revenue growth of 19%. I mean, 19% year-over-year. That is not something you expect uh, for any company the size of a Goldman Sachs. No, actually, 19% revenue growth was the best out of the big four and the two we're covering today by a a significant margin, too. So that's really impressive. That means that unlike most of the big banks – the bulk of the profit growth wasn't just from tax reform. Right. Um, I mean, that definitely helped uh, push sure. Goldman's return on equity up to over 14%, which was the bank's highest in over nine years. I think the, the that's the highest since the middle of the financial crisis when Goldman was producing a ton of trading revenue. Um, but anyway, uh, Goldman, the, the results look pretty great all around. Um, investment banking revenue was up 18%, really strong underwriting results. They said, quote, significantly higher backlog compared to the first quarter. So we can expect the revenue growth to you know, carry into the third quarter and beyond. Um, they achieved the top market share for M&A activity, um, equity underwriting, IPO underwriting. Um, investment management revenue looked great. It was up 20% year over year. Their assets under supervision actually grew by $15 billion despite a slight market value decline which means money is flowing in despite so-so market performance, which is always a great sign for an investment bank. Um, and kind of my favorite reason to like Goldman, they're investing in lending segment, which includes their Marcus consumer banking platform. Revenue soared by 23% year over year, a 67% increase in, re- in revenue related to directly to the interest income they're receiving from Marcus. So that's, a big, big deal. Um, the only thing that kind of wasn't great was trading revenue was just okay. Uh, trading revenue is a big deal for investment banks, as we'll get into in the second half of the show. But while 
other banks with big investment banking presences like JP Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley kind of blew expectations away on trading revenue. Goldman just kind of they kind of did what was expected. So that was kind of one weak point. But all in all, Goldman Sachs had a really, really strong quarter. Yeah, they did. And let's actually jump into Marcus a little bit uh, a little bit more. Um, so a couple of things that I want to highlight here. So first off, um, Goldman's CEO uh, CFO uh, on the call reported that you know they've originated over four billion dollars of consumer loans um, at Marcus at this point, and they're holding three point one billion dollars of those loans on their balance sheet as of June thirty. So you know they they're 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 lending. It's scaling pretty rapidly, um, and um, they these are loans that they're pretty comfortable holding on their balance sheet. Um, additionally. Um, the retail deposits, I'm quoting here, grew to over $23 billion. So that's just an enormous amount of deposit activity for a bank that historically hasn't been that involved in deposits. Um, and that's a real sign that this digital banking initiative is working well for Goldman. Of course, the flip side of that is now a lot of other folks are looking to get involved. You know, Citigroup has started making noise about it, uh, JPM as well, I believe. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, interest in other folks kind of building. Um, increasingly strong digital presences to really try to combat Marcus's success. Now, Goldman's stance on this is essentially, hey, listen, even with a relatively small market share long-term, not that they're predicting that, but that you know, it's certainly possible, competitive, online, like we, we all get it. It may, in fact, be um, that they aren't um, a massive winner long-term, but that even with a relatively small market share across, it can still meaningfully move their business forward. And um, they believe that they can you know, maintain some differentiation um, with all of their kind of doing uh, to develop the, the tech backend and because they aren't as tethered to kind of some of the older ways of doing things that you, the universal banks really largely are. Um, and so that, that can be kind of a long-term benefit to Marcus. Yeah, and it's also kind of interesting to point out that Goldman is not stopping with just personal loans and savings accounts. They uh, did a presentation over this uh, about a month ago where they mentioned areas like mortgages, credit cards, auto loans, checking accounts, things that traditionally have, tr- traditionally have not been in their wheelhouse mm-hmm. that they're planning on jumping into. We actually just recently learned that they're going to be Apple's co-branding credit card partner. Now, I don't know of a bigger way to make an instant impact in the credit card space than to partner with a company like Apple. So when Goldman's getting into this consumer banking businesses, they're kind of jumping in really strong. They're, they're not just kind of tiptoeing in the water. They're jumping into this full force. So if they actually do add mortgages, auto loans, and other things like that, uh, they also mentioned insurance, for example, for consumers, that they could really you know, produce some serious revenue if they're successful. Yeah, no, and insurance is a huge opportunity. Um, it's interesting as well. So one of the things that they are trying to do is um, test doing some lending to folks with somewhat lower FICO scores. So think kind of your 630 to 660 range. Um, they, they called this, quote, deliberate testing, end quote, um, and that it represents less than 5% of originations. But they are trying to kind of ladder down sort of go down a little further on the credit ladder to see sort of what things look like down there. Now, to be clear, like overall portfolio um, quality through Marcus is very strong. Average FICO score is over 700. So I, I think we can feel pretty good that this is um, sort of intentional, thoughtful risk taking on. Um, but I will say um, it, it does make me a little bit nervous because um, 
you know, this consumer lending um, historically has been something that the banks haven't been, let's say, that involved in, um, and particularly given that Goldman doesn't have <laughs> that much. Um, experience in this particular area, I'm a little bit nervous that this might be chasing yield, and that when the credit cycle turns, as inevitably it will one day, um, that that could become a real problem for them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, that does kind of make me nervous. On one hand, I I don't want to really question Goldman's ability to manage risk because they've done that very very well for a very long time. Right. But as Michael just said, this is a new area for the bank, so. Are, and traditionally, their their clients, you know, institutional investors and high net worth investors, are not low FICO score, you know, risk. So this is definitely a new area for them that kind of is worth watching. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of sum up their quarter and kind of where things stand, you know, it's very clear they're investing very heavily in the digital bank. Um, certainly, their uh, acquisition of the uh, Clarity. Uh, money app um, is also kind of part of that that move to just make this just as as robust an online offering as possible, and it really I think puts them in 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 place long term to compete with uh, your mints and kind of the the online sort of financial hacking, if you will, um, uh, softwares and apps that have, that have really seized a lot of people's interest and and um, have have done a lot to kind of democratize banking, um, and then of course. The quarter itself, pretty darn good. I mean, sure, trading was a little bit disappointing, but um, consumer banking looks pretty darn huge. Um, and of course, valuation, Matt, you and I have talked about this before, is uh, pretty attractive. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Goldman's trading for right around 1.2 times book, which is less than all of the big four banks except Citigroup. So, and, and Goldman has significantly underperformed the banking sector in 2018. So, Goldman is trading like a pretty cheap bank right now. And if you think that consumer banking especially is going to be a big future catalyst, then Goldman could, looks like a pretty compelling value right now. Yeah. Um, and that's not something I say lightly, uh, lightly with one of the big banks. Um, okay. So that's Goldman. Now let's turn to Morgan Stanley. Now, remember, one of the really important things when thinking about any one um, company's success or failure is to look at their closest comps wherever possible, right? So, you know, if, if somebody makes smartphones, some, you know, you want to kind of compare to other folks making smartphones to understand whether there are secular trends or there are things that are really specific to that company. So just remember that lens as we talk about Morgan Stanley. So, like Goldman, a, 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 a great quarter by most measures. Earnings are up 49%, 12% revenue growth. Not quite as strong as Goldman's, but I mean, <laughs> I'll take 12% revenue growth from a big bank any day of the week. Yeah, definitely. They, they didn't have, um, you got you to gotta remember that Morgan Stanley doesn't have quite as big of a consumer banking growth engine kind of fueling revenue. So that's kind of a big differentiator there. But Morgan Stanley's earnings looked pretty great all around, just like Goldman's. Uh, investment banking revenue was up 20%, just like Goldman. Uh, and just like Goldman, M&A activity, underwriting, IPOs were really strong areas. Um, the big difference in Morgan Stanley's earnings was that they blew trading expectations out of the water. Uh, analysts expected trading to be pretty flat year over year, but Morgan Stanley's rose 9%, and it was evenly split between uh, equities trading and fixed income trading, which really made investors happy. Um, wealth management and investment management revenues were up by about 4% in both of those categories, but 
not quite what the market wanted to see, but the trading revenue and um, great investment banking results just really overshadowed that. Yeah, and one of the interesting things here is that usually you kind of see equity and fixed income trading, uh, to some extent, kind of moving, um, correlating negatively with each other. You know, when one's up, the other one is down. So for them to both kind of grow at the same time is a really interesting outcome. Yeah, and just they they both grew at nine percent, which was great. Like Michael said, normally one goes up and one is kind of weak. So that's a great all-around result. It seems like they're kind of taking market share and trading from some of their their rivals almost. But it was just a really great quarter. Um, like I said, revenue growth not quite as strong as Goldman. So it seems like their earnings growth growth was more fueled from tax reform than Goldman's was. But like I said, trading was just a big differentiator, and that's why Morgan Stanley was probably the best performer of the bank stocks right after earnings. Yeah, it's interesting because when thinking about both Goldman and Morgan Stanley, um, <laughs> analysts were kind of asking uh, on the Goldman calls, sort of like, well, why do you think the market hasn't rewarded you? And um, their response, and management's response was essentially, well, because these things kind of need more time to play out, you know, and so, you know, we're not really interested. We don't really care about stock price today or tomorrow or next quarter. What we're really thinking about is what business value are we driving a couple of years, several years down the road, and then what will that mean for book value, and therefore what will that mean? Sort of everything kind of follows from that. With Morgan Stanley, it was interesting because um, one analyst essentially asked, um, "Hey, y'all have had a, a lot of change. You know, you've done a lot of new things." But it feels like everybody else is doing more new things. <laughs> and Morgan Stanley's management was essentially like, listen, we are going to continue executing on the growth plan we have. Um, and you know, we're, we're obviously going to be looking into you know, understanding better things like the digital bank, for example, which they haven't really played in much. Um, but uh, you know, we're, we're going to kind of focus on the things that we know are going to be winners. And also, keep in mind, we've changed. Uh, I'm, I'm Paraphrasing, but essentially, we've we've changed more in the last few years than in the previous eighty, and so you know, kind of give us some time to kind of digest that change and to really make sure that we've gotten it right, top to bottom. And I I really liked management's response to those questions, sort of with both banks, because I think that that speaks to a a mindset that can be hopefully a, a really good value driver for the company's long term. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting point to note that both of these banks are evolving more in the past couple of years than they have throughout their whole history. So it's really interesting to see how this is going to play out. I think that might be part of the reduced valuation just because the market doesn't know what to expect with Goldman consumer banking wise. Are they going to get a little bit bigger or are they going to become a consumer bank like Bank of America is? Right. Um, and, and similar with Morgan Stanley. Like, they just don't know what to expect yet. So these could be great revenue drivers, or they could just kind of be experiments that don't really go anywhere. Um, so that's kind of one of the reasons you might see a depressed valuation right now. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And of course, depressed valuations, because the market doesn't know what to expect, can be opportunities for those of us who think we know what we can expect. <laughs> of course, <laughs> predicting the future is notoriously difficult. All right, so we'll turn to our next topic in a minute, but first a word from our sponsor. The right hire can make a huge impact on your business. That's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. In fact, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. 
I mean, let's face it, you post job boards and hope you'll find the right person for your job. But think about it. How often do you check job boards? For, for most people, it's a pretty occasional thing. But there is a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce is there, and that's LinkedIn. Hurry to linkedin.com slash fool for $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so let's turn to our second topic, which is kind of more of an overview of investment banking. Now, first off, folks, uh, head back to our December 11th, 2017 episode on the investment banks if you want kind of more discussion as to sort of how all of this interplays with their um, underlying business model. Um, that's where we kind of did our, our deep dive on the investment banks and really kind of understanding, running them through a framework, figuring out exactly how that works. But we figured we would talk a little bit about um, investment banking itself, what those actions look like, and kind of how that all works today. So, Matt, take it away. Yeah, after we did that episode, I got a bunch of questions to the effect of what is trading revenue? Um, you know, what is, what exactly does M&A advisory mean? Things like that. So, I figured we would, you know, kind of take a few minutes and discuss kind of the ins and outs of the main ways investment banks make money. It can especially be confusing because different banks generally have different names for their business segments that do the same thing. In fact, I don't think in any of the big banks have the same names for all of their business segments. Um, just for example, Goldman calls its trading desk, I think, institutional securities. Um, some other banks actually just call it trading. So um, generally, you can break down investment banking activities into four key areas that all investment banks generally participate in. You have advisory revenues, underwriting revenues, trading revenues, and wealth management. So just to kind of go through those one at a time, let's, we'll start with advisory. Um, advisory generally refers to when companies want to acquire another company, when two companies want to merge. There's a whole lot that happens behind the scenes. Um, for example, when AT&T and Time Warner merged recently, it wasn't just like a couple people met in a room and said, okay, all the Time Warner shares are going to be AT&T shares, and let's all go home. Um, there's a, quite a process to it. And this is where investment banks come in. So they'd kind of do the behind the scenes of mergers and acquisitions and collect fee revenue for those services. Yeah. And so just to unpack that a little bit further, imagine that you are looking to, you're a business owner and you're looking to purchase another business that is operating in, let's say, a similar area to what you do. Um, you're going to want to basically understand, okay, cool. Um, how much are you paying people? Like, um, you know, what costs do you have that I need to understand? How exactly does the business work? Kind of all that due diligence work. And some of that um, is where the investment banks come in, and some of it's done by, you know, legal experts and things like that. But it's a, a really powerful thing in terms of sort of modeling out, like, okay, if we pay this amount for this business, at what point are we going to kind of have recouped our investment? And what's the opportunity? And that's where the investment banks can really come in with kind of that strategy mindset to help you understand. And, um, both quantitatively and qualitatively, what that looks like. Right. Um, so that's M&A advisory. It's a big deal for investment banks. As I mentioned, uh, Goldman had the number one M&A market share. Morgan Stanley is definitely up there. JP Morgan is a big player in this market, too. Mm -hmm. So this is a very key revenue stream for investment banks. Um, underwriting is another one. That Advisory and underwriting are generally what's traditionally called investment banking. Um, even though investment banks engage in other businesses, as we're about to talk about, underwriting is a term that most people are familiar with more in more of an insurance context than in a banking context. Uh, in a banking context, this generally refers to an IPO, 
um, when the companies are making kind of a follow-on offering of stock or when they're issuing debt. And it means that the investment bank is committing to sell a certain amount of shares or bonds on the open market on behalf of the company. Um, when a company goes public, they don't just have a sale of their shares. They have investment banks. Generally, it's more than one if it's a reasonably sized IPO. And they have these investment banks commit to sell certain numbers of shares each. Like, for example, Goldman might commit to sell a million shares of a company's stock. No matter what the market conditions are, they say, we are going to sell a million shares of your stock. And that's how IPOs take place. Um, Goldman gets fee revenue for that as well. Um, investment banking is very fee-driven as opposed to interest-driven traditionally, as we mentioned in that other episode. And underwriting is the other big area of traditional investment banking that people need to know about. Right. And um, you can, thinking about investment banking underwriting, you know, there's equity, there's IPO, as we've talked about, there's debt underwriting. There, there are a lot of opportunities for banks to make fees, <laughs> to make fee income, kind of helping the company sell um, whatever it is it's looking to sell here. Uh, let's turn to our third piece, which is trading, trading revenue. Um, so, investment banks will manage money for clients and trade on their behalf, and they'll also trade for themselves um, so that they can just kind of make money both ways. Yeah, this is kind of the least understood part of investment banking among retail investors, at least. And it's also very unpredictable. As we saw for Morgan Stanley's report, for example, this quarter, analysts usually get this wrong when they're predicting trading revenue in one way or another, either to the plus side or the bottom side. Um, just because it's very unpredictable, there's two main ways that trading revenue comes about. The first is client trading, when investment banks will call their institutional clients or their high net worth clients and suggest investments to them. The clients will then order the investments, and the salespeople will call the the bank's traders, and the traders will place the trades on the open market and earn commission revenue that way. The other way is called proprietary trading, where banks are trading on their own behalf to try to earn a profit. Um, if you hear of you know high-frequency trading, um, algorithmic trading. Flash crashes. Uh, right. Um, there's a, a bunch of different forms this can take, and there's way too many ins and outs to proprietary, pr proprietary trading. Too many things that can go wrong to mention in just a short podcast. So this is proprietary trading is the reason why this is very unpredictable. Um, it's really tough to, you know, I mean, that's why they call it proprietary, because no one really knows how it works for each individual bank and how they're trying to make money. So it's very predict unpredictable how they're going to, you know, convert their proprietary trading strategies into revenue. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, as as you noted, you know, trading revenue generally higher during volatile periods, lower during calm markets, and so um, that's one of the interesting sort of like countercyclical things almost that happens uh, with these investment banks. Um, let's turn to number four: wealth management. Now, this is one probably most people on some level get. You know, you give your money to one of these investment banks; they manage it for you; they charge a fee uh, for doing so. Yeah, it's not that different than when, say, you know you deposit money into your brokerage account, except that they're doing it for you. It's kind of like a, it's, it's a kind of fee for services business. They're earning commissions. They're earning asset management fees, depending on the exact arrangement. Mm -hmm. A lot of investment managers, I think a 1% is still the standard fee for a actively managed investment account with one of these investment banks. So these banks are re earning recurring revenues from that. 
as their clients are authorizing trades, they're getting trading revenue, as I just mentioned. So wealth management and trading kind of complement each other nicely. Um, and they actually kind of offset each other during volatile times. When trading revenue goes down because the market's doing really well and just going up and up and up, trading revenue tends to drop. Wealth management revenue tends to rise because clients' assets are growing. They have more assets under management. The securities in their portfolios are more valuable, et cetera, et cetera. So they're generating higher, higher asset management fees. On the other hand, when markets crash or get really volatile, wealth management revenue tends to drop because the value of the assets they're managing tends to go down. But trading revenue tends to pick up because – Traders like to take advantage of volatility. That's where the money is to be made, especially in proprietary trading. So the wealth management and trading revenue of investment banks tend to offset each other and are very complementary. And that's kind of one big key for investors to know that generally one of those is stronger than the other. Right. I mean, it just kind of depends on <laughs> on how the kind of broader market's doing and, and how the bank is executing on its particular priorities. Um Cool. Well, uh, that's really kind of the main stuff um, that really goes into this uh, investment banking stuff that we keep talking about. So, so hopefully that's kind of helped you uh, understand sort of how all of that interacts and exactly how banks are making money when they're talking about things like trading revenue. Um, and so that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments? You can always reach us at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!